Thanks for joining us. I'm Diane Rehm. Donald Trump tweets that the U.S. should greatly expand its nuclear capability. President Obama announces a permanent ban on offshore drilling in parts of the Arctic, and North Carolina fails to repeal a controversial bathroom bill. Here for this very last Friday news roundup, Susan Page of USA Today, Manu Raju of CNN, and Abby Phillip of the Washington Post. And throughout the hour, we will be taking your calls, 800-433-8850. Send your email to drshow at wamu.org. Follow us on Facebook or send us a tweet. And welcome to you three. Great to be here, Diane. It's a privilege to be here on this last Thank day. Thank you so yes. much. Manu, the Electoral College cast their votes on Monday. Was it the landslide that Trump claimed it was? Not quite. Uh, it was the 46th largest victory, electoral college victory, out of 58 that this country has had. So not quite a landslide. In fact, uh, the final number was uh, 304 electoral votes uh, for Donald Trump and 227 for Hillary Clinton. And what was interesting about this particular time was that there were this uh, so-called faithless electors, people who did not vote the way that their state Voted And for Donald Trump, there were two people who from Texas, electors from Texas, who did not vote for him. They voted for John Kasich and for Ron Paul instead. And for Hillary Clinton, there were five. Uh, several from Washington State voted for Colin Powell. Uh, there was a vote for Bernie Sanders and vote for Faith Spotted Eagle uh, getting an electoral vote. This is the, the largest, uh, um, the most amount of uh, so-called faithless electors in American history, larger than the 1808 uh, race uh, where James Madison lost wow. six <clears throat> electoral votes. So uh, this is something that is really uncommon, obviously, uh, and it's something that raises a lot of questions about the future of the Electoral College if we start to see a bunch of rogue electors uh, voting however they want. Uh, it raises a lot of questions about what to do going forward. Uh, well, um, you know, this whole thing from the very beginning was kind of a fool's errand, as many people pointed out. It's very difficult for people to defect, in part because many states have laws on the books, uh, binding them to uh, act according to the vote in in the actual election. And to break that would have would have caused a cascade of potential legal problems for many of them, including um, fines. So, so the challenge was there, but we learned later that the Clinton campaign had stayed in touch with some of the folks m going forward with this, this effort, in part because this is the balancing act that they've been you know, waging for the last couple of weeks, they want their supporters to understand that they acknowledge their concern about uh, the election, about the uh, Russian interference in the election, how that might have affected the outcome. But they didn't want to be seen as publicly pushing um, electoral college defectors. So they tried to keep these people on the line in the background, but it ended up kind of backfiring because, as Manu pointed out, more electors defected from her than defected from 
from Trump. And uh, and later we saw Trump use that as part of the rationale for saying, um, you know, this was all a scam. And every time that the Clinton folks want to revisit the results of the election, they end up losing more than they did at the very beginning. Seriously. You know, it's interesting, even though uh, Donald Trump won the Electoral College, nobody disputes that. Um, he lost the popular vote by an historic margin. There's this historic disparity between the results of the Electoral College and the results of the popular vote. Hillary Clinton got about 2.9 million more votes than Donald Trump did, uh, more than 2% uh, higher than he did. And this clearly still annoys him because even though there's no question he is the person who's going to be inaugurated on January 20th, he continues to tweet that he could have won exactly. the popular vote. He would have campaigned differently if we didn't have an Electoral College system. I'm sure that's true. Also, just to note that polls now show that Americans are not so wild about the Electoral College. You know, only about half of Americans think that system makes any sense. But there's a big partisan divide because in modern times, at least, it's advantaged the Republicans. Two elections in 2000 and the one that we just had have been to the advantage of Republicans to have this Electoral College system. So with a Republican-controlled Congress, not likely anything would happen. You know, you'd have to change the Constitution. Exactly. And that would require not just the Congress, but the states. And for smaller states, for rural states, right. uh, it's to their advantage. All right. Let's yeah. talk about some of Donald Trump's latest picks. He uh, talked about uh, Sean Spicer to be White House press secretary. Tell us about Sean. Sean Spicer is a familiar figure to many reporters in Washington. He's been the uh, spokesman uh, for the Republican National Committee. He's very close to Reince Priebus, so I think this is a kind of victory for Reince Priebus. It's also uh, reassuring, I think, to some of the reporters who cover the White House because um, Sean is somebody who is kind of a familiar figure who I think has a good relationship with a lot of reporters, not seamless, not not without any uh, bumps in the road. But unlike some of the other names that were floated for press secretary, he's someone who's seen this as a, a spokesman who tries to work with reporters. And will he try to rein in some of Trump's tweets? Well, he'll try to clean up some of Trump's tweets. You actually saw him uh, this morning doing just that after Donald Trump tweeted yesterday suggesting that uh, the United United States would, should increase its nuclear uh, capability, uh, something that would reverse uh, decades of American policy, U.S. policy. Uh, he was on the shows today saying, well, he only said that if other countries decide to ramp up their nuclear capabilities. And he was only talking about modernizing uh, the, the weapons, not necessarily uh, a, a, a unilateral ramp up of U.S. nuclear capability. That's going to be the challenge, though, for the, this new communications department. Because Donald Trump uh, fires off 140 character yeah. tweets that yeah. uh, that are not insignificant. Those are his views, and you can't explain his views uh, if he's not answering questions himself and he's not having press conferences himself. So that lands on the laps of people like Sean Spicer, who are going to have to explain what the president of the United States is actually saying. So, Abby, what do you expect the president's relationship to the press? will be. I think it'll be pretty similar to what we've seen thus far, especially in the latter six months of the, the general election when he did many fewer of these sort of impromptu interviews calling in at random times to different news programs, uh, but but did uh, spend a lot of time talking about the 
the press uh, at his rallies and using them as a kind of a punching bag uh, to rile up his supporters, to, to gin up public opinion in his favor and against the media uh who r- repeatedly fact checks him, asks questions that they don't necessarily want to answer at the at any particular moment. But I but I do see Trump also doing uh, less less of these sort of um, impromptu interviews, but still talking to the media a, a decent amount. I mean, just this morning he apparently had a conversation with the hosts of uh, Morning Joe on MSNBC, conveying one of news, his favorite one of his favorite programs, conveying news to them um, on on the phone uh, just the hours before they went on air. Um, And that's the sort of thing that I I think we can expect more of. But what more, what difference can we expect from the press itself? You know, before I talk about that, I think this is this is going to be quite different from previous White Houses. It, it, it already is. The president-elect has not had a news conference since July. That is uh, not happened in modern times to go so long to finish a campaign to be the president-elect and not to s- submit yourself to questions at a at a regular news conference, although he has done interviews with, with 60 Minutes and with the New York Times. It's not that he's done no interviews, but he hasn't done that traditional form. That's a sign to me. Maybe he doesn't feel that's the form he, he needs to do. The, I've heard suggestions both from Sean Spicer and also from Newt Gingrich, who is advising the president-elect, that maybe he, instead of taking questions just from reporters, you take questions from the public. Maybe that's something that that keep connected with the public. You see the president-elect communicating with his supporters through Twitter, going around the traditional news media. So this is going to be a different kind of enterprise for the reporters who cover him every day and for the for the White House press operation that's just getting so set up. So how are you all going to change your own stance and change your own approach in order to do the news. You know, I think in some ways reporters will do what we've always done, which is to try to cover what's happening, to try to hold officials accountable, to try to compare uh, what somebody's doing with what they said they were going to do. But I also think that after this campaign that a lot of news organizations feel an increased obligation to keep connected with voters, with Americans, to try to hear what they're saying. And there's, I think there's a feeling, and this is a feeling I have, that we didn't do a good enough job doing that over the past a year. A disconnect. Yeah, and not, not as, you, as you might say, Diane, not listening hard enough. Yeah, exactly. And, and also, you know, Donald Trump says a lot of things that uh, not necessarily are factually accurate, and it's our job uh, to ensure that what he's saying, uh, there's actually some truth to it, or that it's consistent with what he promised uh, the American public when he was campaigning for office. Uh, so, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, we will do, of course, is we will get both sides uh, of every issue and, and report on that. But if Donald Trump chooses not to weigh in by having not having daily press briefings or by not have answering questions, he's not going to get his side of the story in. And that's a shortcoming. That's why I hope that they continue those daily press briefings. All right, briefings. and you're going to have to worry about the issue of moral equivalency as you try to report both sides. Short break here. We'll talk about the appointment of billionaire investor Carl Icahn. When we come back, stay with us.
Decius Daily. Decius Daily. Decius Daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Welcome back here in the studio for... The final Friday news roundup on the Diane Rehm Show. Manu Raju, senior political reporter for CNN. Abby Phillips, she's national political reporter for the Washington Post. And Susan Page, Washington bureau chief for USA Today. Susan Page, tell me what Carl Icahn, age 80, which I totally ascribe to, is going to be doing as special advisor to the president on federal regulations. Well, President-elect Trump has talked uh, throughout his campaign about there's too many federal regulations. It's costing jobs. It's costing uh, business efficiency. It's inappropriate. He promised there would be t- he would get rid of two regulations for every new regulation his administration puts on the books. And Carl Icahn has been a- an advisor to him for some time through the through the campaign. Obviously, someone he trusts and respects brings that business instinct. Like many of his appointees, has no history in the government, has always been in the private sector. And in this job, he's going to try to be, I think, clearing away regulations that the administration thinks uh, don't work. This does, however, raise the prospect for a lot of conflicts of interest. Uh, Carl Icahn is a billionaire investor. He's involved in a lot of industries. He's involved in some of the industries on which he will be recommending regulations be eliminated. And this will be, I think, one of any number of Trump administration appointees that will face some conflict of interest questions as this administration moves forward. Yeah, and he's saying right now that he's not required to give up uh, his business dealings. He's because he's not getting paid for this job. But oh, there really? Are, yeah, he's not going to get not gonna paid. Take, he's not, he's taking, not taking any money. Doesn't he have to take a dollar? I don't know if that's necessarily required because I think this may be not. But does that exempt him? Do we know that that necessarily exempts him from any charges? I'm not sure because this is a new position. So it's correct me if anybody knows differently, but I I don't think we actually know exactly how his job will be structured. I wonder how he's going to do it, having had no experience in the federal bureaucracy at all and facing this extraordinary number of federal regulations. Well, the mandate here is going to be to eliminate them. So it's for Trump. Just slash and burn. Just slash and burn. I mean, that's exactly what uh, that's exactly the reason that Icon has been put into this position. His lack of experience is for Trump uh, proof of his ability to do what he wants him to do. Um, and, and Icon has been pretty vocal about the impact of existing regulations on his current businesses. So it wouldn't be surprising that um, that he would take some of those issues up. And and these conflict of interest problems are very real. But uh, the fact that he has been appointed as a special advisor, which is not Senate confirmable, he's not taking a salary. um, There is very little oversight for a position like that. And that's one of the reasons why Trump would put him there. And if I could add, I mean, he does have 
clear conflicts. You know, he is uh, the largest, uh, his largest investment right now is with AIG, the giant insurance company. And AIG, of course, is under uh, tremendous scrutiny from the Federal Reserve. And how does the Trump administration approach the Federal Reserve? Did they ask them to step off on some of that regulatory oversight? And also, Mr. Icahn was uh, influential in ensuring that Donald Trump picked Scott Pruitt to head the EPA. Now, he also conveyed to Mr. Pruitt his concern with an EPA biofuels blending rule, and Mr. Mm. Icon has an oil refinery, a major mm. investment in an oil refinery. So you can see those conflicts emerge as this uh, administration takes shape. And you've also got China raising questions about Peter Navarro, Susan. So Peter Navarro, that Mr. Trump has indicated he's going to be appointed um, as to oversee trade and industrial policy, and this is significant because Peter Navarro like Carl Icahn, no experience in government. He's been an academic, he's been a filmmaker, and he has been a fierce critic of China. He did a film in 2012 called Death by China, which had an animation that actually had China stabbing the United States and the United States bleeding. So he has a really strong view about what he sees as the real detriments of the kind of free trade that we've had, to some degree at least, uh, with China. And China's reacted, I think, with with some concern. As with our relationship with Russia, our relationship with China is going to be different under the Trump administration in ways that only are now beginning to take shape. It's going to be so interesting to see what views uh, Donald Trump actually listens to, especially on issues like trade, because he's been pointing a lot of people who have conflicting views uh, on this issue. People like Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State uh, nominee, is more open to to freer trade. People uh, like uh, Gary Cohn, who's going to be, who is the former Goldman Sachs uh, president or the current one, uh, he's going to lead the National Economic Council, also open to more expanded trade. But Wilbur Ross, who's the deputy, uh, who's the Commerce Secretary nominee, is a restrictionist on this issue, as is Mr. Navarro. So uh, where does Donald Trump come down and whose views does he listen to? That's going to be uh, a real question going forward. It'll be interesting to see how he puts those views together and comes up with a conclusion. Talk about Kellyanne Conway, who apparently did not want the press secretary's job and has now been named counsel to the president. Well, Kellyanne uh, Conway, Donald Trump's former campaign manager and, uh, in fact, the only female campaign manager in a winning presidential election, um, is, in fact, coming into the White House after many, many weeks of negotiation and back and forth uh, with Donald Trump himself, who really wanted her in the White House and preferentially wanted her in a public-facing role, a job where she could be essentially the face of his administration. Uh, Trump did want her to serve as press secretary, but Kellyanne is uh, someone who who is viewed and views herself as uh, providing broader, more strategic advice to the president-elect. And in this new role, she'll be a special, special advisor and will have a, a, a potentially um, whatever portfolio she wants or whatever portfolio Trump wants her to have. Um, and for a lot of people uh, coming in to the White House from the Trump campaign and even folks looking at um, the, the Trump White House from the outside, uh, many of them breathing a sigh of relief because of this perception that Kellyanne brings a certain professionalism and calm to the to the institution, um, and uh, she is both a, a good communicator, which is one of the reasons 
Trump likes her, and but also someone who uh, is loyal and a defender of the president and has his ear. And good for her to balance family and professionalism. Yeah, she has, I think, four kids. Four children, um, Very which kids. is a big, big uh, task. Uh, I think her mom has been helping her out the past year. Where yeah. she's been running. Uh, running this campaign. Um, she had given some thought to uh, working instead with an outside group that's going to be formed to promote Trump's agenda. There was some appeal to that. But going in the White House, that's that's a big that's a big job. job. And, you know, I, th- I suspect we will continue to see her be, to some degree, the public face of the administration, not so much mm. doing briefings, but she has been the queen of cable TV right. uh, mm-hmm. during during the campaign in defending and explaining and pushing back against negative stories. In, in softening so, Donald Trump's uh, rough edges at times, even after uh, that Access Hollywood tape leaked in October, where Donald Trump, of course, uh, bragged about groping women in very vulgar terms, uh, she was out there defending him. She said that it was, she said it was not right for him to say those things, but also was not afraid to go out and also uh, toe the line for Donald Trump. Also interesting, though, how she went out and criticized Mitt Romney, uh, right, as Romney was being considered a Secretary of State. Uh, that actually angered some folks in well, uh, the Trump transition. Well, she simply said I do not think this man should be Secretary of State. And which is almost unheard of for an aide to do that and almost undercutting the selection process. Reince Priebus, for one, was pushing Mitt Romney, and I'm not sure if Mr. Priebus was so happy about that. But do you think she would have said that if she hadn't? her directly She's, from Donald she Trump. She said that she got permission from Donald Trump to say that she t- they asked him and he said it was okay and he put out a statement later confirming that so uh, clearly he seemed fine by having this exactly. spat happen publicly. But maybe exactly. that signals a kind of uh, rolling debate we're going to see mm-hmm. in a more transparent way with this with this uh, White House uh, because um, we we have seen, we, we do have, com- we have competing power centers being set up in this White House in a way that President Obama would never have allowed. It's really more reminiscent of the Reagan White House, which had started out with three competing power systems with somewhat different views about how President Reagan should behave. And, and right. I- and I would argue that, that Kellyanne is one of the few people in Trump's circle who has the ability to do that sort of thing and survive. Many of the other folks in his circle are very deferential to him in public and in private. Um, and, and Kellyanne expressed her dispro- disapproval of the Romney pick publicly with or without Trump's permission. Uh, and, and that signaled that and her coming into the White House after that signals that she has a, a certain degree of independence that many other people do not. All right. There are lots of other things to talk about. Let's go to Sloan in Reston, Virginia. You're on the air. Hi, Diane. Thank you. What an honor to be on. I, I just wanted to, first of all, say that you know the, the North Carolina bathroom bill that, that was mentioned, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the discriminatory bill, reminds us that we still need to pass a federal law protecting Americans from discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. That sort of discrimination, including in public accommodations, is still legal in most of the country. And uh, so we do need that law. And I just also, as a gay man, uh, on my own behalf and behalf of my husband and my late parents, I really wanted to thank you for your numerous shows through the years that have brought us closer to the day when equal rights and religious liberty for all Americans really, truly will become a reality. You've done so much through the years on that. So... I just wanted to thank you. Thank you, Sloan Abbey. 
Uh, the North Carolina situation is one that is really at the forefront of what I think will be um, many years of debate over this issue. North Carolina uh, has rem- that the law HB two that essentially lays out uh, the people who are protected by anti discrimination laws and leaves out LGBT individuals is still on the books and may remain on the books for quite some time um, and. It is it is notable, I think, that um, that this debate has gone from simply uh, sort of letting the status quo be to excluding LGBT individuals from legal protections. And I think that's a trend that we're going to see in a lot of other places, including potentially in Texas very soon. And talk about what's happened to the governor himself, a democratically elected governor who really fought a hard what a right. what a power grab we've seen by yeah. Republicans right. in North Carolina. North Carolina is going to be the center of a lot of political disputes, I think, over the next couple of years. Very tough fought uh, gubernatorial race. The Republican incumbent did not concede for some time, thought about requesting a, a recount, finally conceded the race. But then the Republican-controlled legislature passed, passed several bills that constrain the power, reduce the power of the incoming governor, who, of course, is the is Democrat, and the outgoing Republican governor signed it. This is really extraordinary. It's an ex- extraordinary behavior um, by, uh, by the legislature and the outgoing government in the face of a decision by the voters. And you're listening to the Diane Rehm Show. Manu, I know you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I mean, it was hardball politics. And and what we're seeing in North Carolina uh, is a state that is going to be a huge battleground state, was in the presidential election. The Clinton campaign thought they were going to win that. Donald Trump uh, did end up winning, but it's a state that's been shifting. I mean, 2008, Barack Obama winning that state. 2012, Mitt Romney winning the state and then becoming a conservative legislature, a Republican governor, and pushing forward on very conservative policies that anger a lot of folks uh, who uh, are more moderate voters, people in the RTP area, people in Charlotte. Uh, it, it's a state that will uh, we'll see a lot of these big well, social fights play out. I mean, you've already had these economic boycotts with conferences, businesses saying they're pulling out. This is a very um, a potentially perilous road for Republicans to go down. Um, North Carolina is a neighboring state. South Carolina knows very well what it's like to have major sporting uh, institutions pull out of their state for long periods of time. Uh, the NBA and the NCAA uh, have already said that they are pulling out of North Carolina. Um, and I and I, th- I think that this... Um, idea that the state uh, can continue to prioritize uh, legislating along these lines at at the detriment of the state's economic health is one that they are going to have to reevaluate very soon. Um, You know, these are Republicans, mind you. I mean, these are folks who are business-minded people whose voters are business-minded. It's very challenging to continue uh, doing things like this for long periods of time when you imperil the economic health. Which is why that they wanted to repeal HB2 at the end of the session. Even uh, Pat McCrory, the outgoing Republican governor, was open to doing that, but they just couldn't reach an agreement. It was a stalemate, and now they're going to have to worry about it in the next uh, legislative session. Manu, tell us about President so uh, Obama's announcement on offshore drilling. 
It was very uh, significant and, and a provocative move. Uh, what he did was he essentially said he, that denying uh, oil leases and oil drilling uh, offshore in areas of the Arctic, uh, areas in, along the Atlantic seaboard, uh, basically from Virginia to Maine, uh, and also uh, around uh, in Alaska. Uh, this was uh, not just your regular uh, executive action. This was him invoking uh, an obscure provision in a 1953 law to essentially uh, deny uh, drilling from taking place in uh, order, uh, in his view, to preserve the endangered species uh, in, in those areas. But why it's significant that he invoked that law was that it's going to be very, very hard for Donald Trump to just simply step in on day one or whenever and just use and erase it. Uh, you can't just wipe it away because that he's law... He's sure going to try. He's going to try, but that law does not have any sort of language saying that, the, the, that you can go in and just do that. It actually does not speak to that. So that means this is going to be tied up in courts for That's a while. That's right. This is this is going to go to the courts, and I don't I don't think. And even while the Obama lawyers insist that they have that there's no provision to allow the new president to reverse it. That's not going to be the last word on it. And it's one of a series of things we've seen the Obama administration do in an increasingly aggressive way in these last few weeks to try to make either ensure Obama's legacy or just constrain uh, President-elect Trump's hand when he when he takes over, including repealing a provision of immigration law that hadn't been used, uh, that was passed in the wake of, of 9-11, hadn't been used for about five years, could be revived possibly as a kind of Muslim registry of non-immigrant visitors. Uh, so you see on several fronts the administration trying to do what it can to either protect what President Obama's done or constrain what President Trump will be able to do. Another part of this is is also about forcing Trump, if he is going to do some of these things, including the Muslim registry or, or providing permits for Arctic drilling, is to force him to affirmatively do these things. Even if uh, what Obama is doing, in the case of NSEERS, that immigration law, Trump could, there is a way for Trump to, to put that back in place. But he would have to do that, forcing a public conversation about the subject. Happy Philip of the Washington Post. Short break now. We'll be right back. And welcome back. I want to work in a caller here from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hi there, Sue. You're on the air. Hello, Mrs. Reem. I just want to say thank you very much. And two quick comments. Sure. One about the Flint, the Flint crisis that's still going on. We have family members in Flint that are still suffering. They're going in monthly for testing for lead and mercury, and that has kind of lost its oomph with the national coverage. And secondly, Betsy DeVos being appointed to Donald Trump's administration um, is kind of a slap in the face for all public schooling. And the teachers, we know from experience here that the teachers here had to fight against her um, to be able to, to hold on to their pay and their benefits. All right, Sue, I'm glad you called. Let's talk about Flint, Michigan. Two former state-appointed emergency managers. Charged, uh, accused of felonies, uh, big prison sentences possible if they, if they were convicted. 
this indictment announced by the state's attorney general. And interesting because it's working up the line. You know, there had been some low-level, I guess originally nine, now 11 low-level people who had been indicted for misconduct in connection with this terrible scandal that continues to have such big repercussions for the people who live in Flint. This works up the line to emergency managers uh, who had been appointed by the governor, and not just in Flint. You know, emergency managers have been appointed in about 20 states and in a series of Michigan cities to take over. And this fuels, I think, the debate over whether that's a good way for democracies to proceed. They didn't keep the interest of people in Flint in mind, I can tell you. What about the governor himself? Could it go that high up? You know, I haven't seen any serious speculation that it goes high as the governor, uh, except um, people in Flint, I think, might like it to go as high as the governor. But this investigation that Attorney General uh, Bill Schuette said is not over. It could continue to go higher. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a huge, huge scandal. I mean, what essentially this was, was what we saw in the developments this week. There were reports from two different Michigan agencies in July 2015 that actually said that uh, raising concerns about high levels of lead uh, in Flint's children, raising concerns about the lead uh, in in the water. And what happened to those reports? They were changed. They were altered. They were buried. They were suppressed. Uh, and that is criminal. And so that's what the state attorney general, general uh, uh, announced this week. And that's what could lead to more criminal charges going forward. Uh, Abby, Betsy DeVos had education. Her attention to or movement away from public education. Right. She's a uh, a big proponent of, um, you know, charter schools as an alternative. And, and, and beyond that um, is someone who also wants to eliminate the Common Core, um, and and for Republicans, I mean, I think this is pretty in line with what they're looking for. She's a very wealthy individual who um, has been involved in in some public interested uh, endeavors throughout her career. One of the interesting things um, I heard this week that I think might come up in the future is the degree to which, in her confirmation hearing, we may not learn much more about her wealth, her financial ties, um, because she's not required to release any financial information um, to be appointed as Secretary of Education. Is she, too, going to refuse income? Well, you're not. The Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, which is overseeing her nomination, does not require her to submit her tax returns. So I don't expect to see her tax returns. Some some committees have required in the past nominees to submit tax returns, but some haven't. So now this is an issue. She happens to have drawn a lucky straw here Mm -hmm. by going before a committee that hasn't uh, required that in the past. One thing that's that's a kind of a theme of some of. President-elect Trump's appointments. He's appointing people to head agencies with whom they disagree with the fundamental mission of that agency. You know, you find that at the EPA, uh, to some degree at the Education Department, even at HUD, where the new secretary-designate Ben Carson has questioned the value uh, of and the consequences of subsidized housing. This This signals some real activism on the part of this new administration. In one of the richest cabinets that you'll ever could imagine. I mean, Betsy DeVos, uh, billionaires like Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, Todd Ricketts, uh, the Deputy Deputy Commerce Secretary nominee. Secretary of State. Secretary of State, Rex Rex Tillerson. We don't know his his full wealth yet. Uh, And Vincent Vincent Viola, who is another billionaire, uh, picked to be Secretary of the Army. So this is, uh, you. I don't think we'll this has to be a record. <laughs> it's a cabinet of uh, the 1%. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. I mean, in many cases, some of these folks may may be much more wealthy than Donald Trump himself. Um, oh, and, don't tell yeah. him that. <laughs> I doubt that. But I do want to make one quick point about the caller from Flint. I mean, one of the, the major findings of these folks uh, who were charged was that they were acting based on an imperative to save money and not act in the public interest. That's a really important thing, uh, f- both for the concept of emergency managers and also for a governance philosophy that is oriented around cost savings as opposed to pu- the public interest. Um, the degree to which we will hear more about this is, I think, going to be largely related to the fact that we have a Republican Congress right now. They've already quietly closed the Flint investigation on the Hill. Um, I think they want to protect Rick Snyder as much as possible. Uh, but but I th- but that is a very important thing, and it's something that we should continue to think about. All right. To James in Washington, D.C., you're on the air. Good morning, Ms. Reen. Good morning, everybody Hi. else. I have a comment to make. Everybody, I've been around people that's actually hysterical because of Trump, you know, winning the election. And I'm well personally. I'm hoping it's not going to be as bad as some people think think it's going to be. But I want to ask, you know, guests to uh, answer the question: Will it be as bad as people think it's going to be? And for you, Miss Ring, I'm going to miss you oh, very, very much. Thank you so much. Let's, you know, I mean, we're all sort of speculating, aren't we? We are all basing those speculations on the campaign, on what he has said, even since the campaign was over, through his tweets. Are we... What are we thinking? What are you thinking? Well, we don't know. I mean, this is a a businessman who's never held public office before. He does not have a voting record. He's not particularly ideological. He he used to be uh, liberal on a lot of issues. Now he's very conservative. He's named uh, cabinet nominees, different picks uh, whose views may contradict with other other picks on on various issues. Uh, So we don't know exactly what what he, 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 he goes by the gut a lot. A lot of times he makes decisions on a whim. Uh, sometimes it may be what people like. Sometimes it may be what people don't like. So we don't know what it promises are going to follow up on. I think this is, this is going to be uh, a new <laughs> these are uncharted waters. It's hard to say exactly how this will play out. You know, presidents sometimes surprise you after they take they call sure. us. You're not always sure. there. Are, in fact, there are almost always surprises in how they proceed. And also their presidencies are outside their control to some degree. You know, we've seen uh, Barack Obama's presidency defined, at least in the early years, by the financial crisis he inherited, or, or George W. Bush by the 9-11 attacks. And so I think you, you think we, we ought to be humble about being very confident that we know what's going to happen. That's true. At the same time, I think we have to rely on the way the government works. Yeah, and he's got a huge bureaucracy. And not only that, it's very hard to legislate. It's very hard to get bills through Congress. Even when you have one party control, we've seen that happen time and again, the same party get into fights, get things bogged down. So it's not going to be, he can't just wave a magic wand and do whatever he wants. It's going to be difficult. Let's talk about what's happening with Obamacare. Suddenly, it is soaring. You had a record 6.4 million customers sign-ups so far 
this season in the open enrollment. It is uh, what seems to be a mad rush of people to get in the system before there are real uh, potentially uh, dramatic changes to uh, both the Affordable Care Act and, and uh, by virtue of that, the entire health care system in the United States. What's most fascinating is that the states where you saw the biggest increases in signups uh, were all states that Donald Trump won. Florida, Texas, North Carolina, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. Um, these are states that... Uh, that are relying, it seems, increasingly heavily on uh, on the ACA and where people are flocking into the system so that perhaps once the law is changed, they, c- Congress, uh, in an effort to replace the law, has to deal with them. They cannot be left out in the cold. Uh, so, you know, in some ways it does undermine this argument that, that the law itself is failing and, and that rising premiums are a barrier to entry for people who want to be covered. And doesn't it also sort of stand in the way of Republicans saying they're going to repeal the law right away? Big debate in the Republican Party about what to do, but I do think that there is momentum for repeal and delay. Repeal, but delay the implementation of that repeal for two years or three years or four years until they figure out exactly what they would replace it with. But some Republicans are very concerned about not acting quickly to repeal Obamacare because they remember what happened with President Obama, which is that he lost control, unified control of Congress after two years in office. So there's some sense that if if there's some big things that Trump wants to do legislatively, he needs to do them in his first two years in office. And that means that could mean repealing Obamacare, even if they don't really know what they're going to replace it and, with. And they can repeal it almost right away because of the budget process on Capitol Hill that allows them to actually avoid a filibuster in the Senate. But they can repeal a lot of the law, not all of it. But there's, it's not clear how far they can go. They can actually, actually try to kill the Medicaid expansion that a lot of even Republican states uh, are relying on. Do they go that far? And then if they do have this two- or three-year transition period to create a new law, that may not be the silver bullet here because a lot of insurers could start to pull out of the marketplace because they're concerned about that this law is going to collapse in and of itself. So then you need to have some sort of legislative fix, and Republicans don't know what that is yet. But wait a minute. I thought that Mr. Trump said he would keep staying on the policy till you're 26 I thought he did approve existing conditions. He's spoken he favorably that. about those things. But, of course, the problem is if you want to keep the ban on using pre-existing convi- con- uh, conditions to deny someone health insurance, that's a complicated deal. That's one reason we have the requirement, the mandate that you have to have health insurance, because otherwise you could just wait till you get sick and know that insurance company has to sell you insurance even after you've been diagnosed with a serious disease. That's what has been the whole problem all along. You know, the, the rush to sign up for uh, the Affordable Care Act coverage kind of underscores how perilous this process may be. We had a poll this week of, of Americans. What was Obama's biggest achievement? The number one thing people named the Affordable Care Act. What was Obama's biggest failure? The number one thing people named was the Affordable Care Act. This is why it's so instructive to remember that Donald Trump did not win the popular vote. He 
lost it by about th- almost three million, which is a lot of people, and it in some ways accounts for what we what we see here and the disconnect between people's feelings about some of the core tenets of his campaign, including repealing the Affordable Care Act, and also their feelings about President Obama and his legacy, and the fact that he is now the the president elect. There's just there's a gap there, and and you know for Republicans going forward with this, they don't need they. They can avoid a filibuster, but they still are, are towing a very narrow line. They cannot afford to lose the support of more than two or three senators um, in order to repeal this law. And that's entirely possible if they also have to do a lot of other things like prop up insurance companies. Happy Philip, uh, the Washington Post, Manu Raju of CNN, and Susan Page of USA Today. Thank you all. And you're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. So now comes the time to say goodbye. Having been in daily touch with you pretty much for the last 37 years and having it come to an end is difficult for me. Physically, I know I'm ready. Emotionally, I only think I'm ready because I know it's going to be a hard adjustment changing habits, shifting thoughts from a daily deadline, missing being with wonderful colleagues. But there comes an end to all things. Having this position here at the microphone has been the most gratifying and fulfilling activity I could ever have dreamed of. I must say, though, I've been saddened by the collapse in kind and courteous discourse we've all witnessed during these last few years, and especially during this last election. But you have remained a fabulous audience, always adding to our conversations with your calls and emails, and more recently with your tweets and Facebook postings. You are kind. You are thoughtful. You are courteous. You exemplify civil conversation, and I've been proud to be your host. I owe so much to the many people who've made these years so rich for me, but most especially to my producers who are here with me now and who will go on to do new things. Denise Couture and Danielle Knight, both of whom will go on to work on the new program 1A with Joshua Johnson. Alex Boti, who moves to WNYC in New York to work for The Takeaway. Lisa Dunn, who begins work on a special project here at WAMU on gun violence. Erica Hendry, who moves to WETA to work on the PBS NewsHour. And Allison Brody, who is currently considering her option. And finally, Sandra Baker, who has been with me for 24 years, and Becca Kaufman, both of whom will stay on to work with me on my new weekly podcast we're calling On My Mind. The podcast will be on a range of subjects, and I hope you'll find your way to them. Before I go, I do have to tell you some sad news. My beloved little dog, Maxie, died just a week ago. He had been suffering from congestive heart disease, and last Saturday he was in particularly deep distress. 
So I wrapped him in his little gray blanket, put him on my lap, and drove him to our vets. Just as we got to the parking lot, before we even got out of the car, his little head went down, and I knew he was gone. He died in my arms. He was 13 and a half years old, and my apartment feels so empty without him. But now, on to new things. Really, it's not goodbye. It's just farewell. I'll continue here at WAMU. I'll be listening to the radio right along with you. For now, I send all of you my love and my prayerful hope for a Merry Christmas and a peaceful New Year.